the divine Son of God delivers from demonic darkness. The divine Son of God delivers from the darkness. And what a deliverance it is. Last week, we looked at the divine Son of God confronting the demonic darkness under four vantage points from kind of four perspectives. First, we looked at Christ's determined path into the demonic darkness. And we reflected that Jesus got into the boat and he went into the storm of the century that as we reflect on it, we can probably see that that could have been at least whipped up by the demonic darkness to keep him from penetrating to the Gentile side, right? To get there in the first place. But Jesus went determined to go for one reason, to go after this man, this lost man. And he went there, and right when the boat got to the beach, this man was there in God's providence and confronted the Lord of glory on the beach. Jesus went for him. And in fact, when they rejected him, Jesus went for him, and guess what he did? He turned around, <laughs> not very efficient with his time apparently, turned around and went across the other side of the lake where they were waiting for him and clamoring for him on the other side. Jesus went after you. Jesus loved you first before you first loved him. Jesus chose you, had compassion on you before you ever had a thought or could have a thought about him. And so the second vantage point then was the destructive plans of the demonic darkness. That's what we saw last week. And so we learned some things with that confrontation on the beach about this man from, from Luke. This man was naked for a long time, walking around without clothing like an animal, humiliated and tortured by the elements. We found out that this man lived among the tombs. That is, he was unclean by Jewish standards, and he was isolated, and he was alone. We learned that this man was bound by chains and shackles from a desperate townspeople who wanted to keep him under wraps because he was dangerous and out of control from time to time in a cyclic manner. But instead, this man would wander about screaming and cutting himself and breaking his bonds with superhuman strength. While he had that physical strength, he was still under the thumb of the demons, for he, the text says he was driven out into the wilderness, further away from people, further away from home. This man, we learn, was possessed not by one demon, but by a legion of demons, probably at least 2,000 demons for 2,000 pigs were killed and buried beneath the sea. And these demons have one plan. One destructive plan for this man, to destroy this man, to kill this man, but how? To kill this man 
through dehumanization, to dehumanize him and deface the image of God and man, to bring him to the place of an animal, and then ultimately to destroy him. We know that the end game is destruction, for what do we see? We see 2,000 pigs possessed by these demons and plunged and killed in the Sea of Galilee, having hurled themselves through demonic power off a cliff. So this is a spiritual war with Jesus in the darkness on that beach. Jesus is massively outnumbered, but Jesus does not, did not run. And that leads us from last week to our third vantage point, was the doctrinal panic of the darkness. You remember that confrontation? It's almost like they're ready to fight and destroy whoever's on the beach, and then they realize this is Jesus. And they panic. They are terrified. And they fall before him, not in worship, but in cringing terror. And they say in verse 28, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you not to torment me. And then a little while later, do not send us into the abyss. Do not send us before the time into the place of confinement. Because the demons know who Jesus is. That this is Yahweh in the flesh. And not only do they know who he is, they know his person, but they, they also know his work. They know that he will win in history that they will be confined, that they will be tormented. And they are terrified of it and beg him, the text says, implore him again and again to not send them into the abyss. And we reflected, as one theologian said, that the terror of the demons, the person and work of Christ, which is the terror of the demons, the finished and finalized work of Christ that will not be unturned. The terror of the demons is the hope of the church. And so we ended then with our fourth vantage point, the divine power over the darkness. And we found out that not by some magical incantation, but with the word, Jesus casts out all of the demons and delivers this demoniac from the darkness. We learn that Christ has all authority, absolute power over the darkness. And that's where we left off last week, and that's where we're going to pick up today, reflecting right there on this incredible deliverance, which was a picture and is a picture for all of church history until Christ come. One of the most glorious pictures of our great salvation from the darkness of sin in the darkness of death. For the man in the story was, now get it, now think about it, the man in the story was naked, isolated, bound, overpowered, driven, wandering, homeless, dehumanized, with the goal of, with the goal of legion, his physical and eternal death. But God, That guy couldn't figure it out. That guy couldn't fix himself. But God came for him, transformed him, delivered him, redeemed him, and what a salvation it was. Pick it up in verse 35. The people went out to see what had happened. 
And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. He was naked before. Now he's clothed. He was wandering before. Now he's seated. He was out of his mind before. Now he's in his right mind. He was crying out and cutting himself. Now he's calm and comforted. He was alone and isolated before. Now he's in the presence of others and he sits at the feet of our Lord Jesus Christ. This man was born again. He wasn't just freed from from physical issues with demons. This man was regenerated. This man was born again. In fact, as point of fact, in verse 36, the text says, those who had seen it reported to them how the man who was demon-possessed had been made well. That word for made well is saved, sozo in the Greek. This is the Greek term for salvation. And this man, this goes beyond demonic deliverance, but this man has full and complete spiritual salvation from the darkness of his own sin and eternal damnation. And so I would say, as we've recapped this, are we there now in the story? Can't we just say, hallelujah, what a Savior? Can't we just say, I can't believe I'm in this passage, that this is me, I've been saved like this? How do we respond to these things? That's the purpose of the text now from verses 34 to 39. And there are only two responses to this great deliverance that we find in this text. And you have a handout if you want to take notes. There's two responses. Number one, there's the response of those still under the dominion of darkness. Number one, there's the response of those still under the dominion of darkness in verses 34 through 36. And then secondly, there's the response of those who are delivered from the darkness in verses 37 through 38. So first then, let's look at the response of those under the dominion of darkness, those that are still unsaved, that are still in the darkness of sin. There are three ways. There are three ways that those still under the dominion of darkness, still in sin, respond to the deliverance that Jesus brings. Number one, look at, look at it in verse 34. The first way that they respond is speculation about Jesus. Number one, speculation about Jesus in verse 34. Look at the text again in verse 34. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they ran away and reported it in the city and out in the country. The people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, And they became frightened. Those who had seen it, that's the herdsmen, those who had seen it, again, the same verb in 36, they reported to them 
how the man who was demon-possessed had been made well. And so, I mean, you're an owner of, the, of all the pigs, right? And you're the herdsman, and you're like, thank you very much. Appreciate it. All the pigs destroyed. <laughs> and so they, are, they, they run into the city, the text says. And not just the city, but they're telling people in the towns all around them in the countryside. They're telling all about what had happened. And then, and they're talking about it, and, and, just, and, and everyone's kind of excited about it. And the people in verse 35 come out to see what had happened. And they come to Jesus, they see this man sitting there, this man that had terrorized them. You know, they're the, they're, this is the city, they came with their pitchforks and their, um, their fire, their, and, and they came to try to shackle this guy down. He was da- he's a danger, a menace to society, a maniac. And they come, and it's truly happened. And they are chatting about it. They are marveling about what Jesus has done. They're speculating about it. They're noticing it. They're admitting it. They're probably nice about it. They're curious about it. They're interested in Jesus. They're taking the time to listen to the story of the herdsmen. They're seeing Jesus in the flesh. They're pursuing it and taking time to listen about it, traveling out where he was at. They're doing all of those things, speculating about the Son of Man. And none of that interest in Jesus is any evidence of saving faith. Lot of talk about Jesus, but no trust in Jesus. I would say that summarizes Lakeville perfectly. It summarizes our culture perfectly. I swear there's more Christians than church members in Lakeville. Add up the numbers of the churches and the roles around here. Lots of talk. Why just speculation? Well, that leads us to our second way that those still in darkness respond. You know, let's, let's put on our thinking's cap. Look at verse 35. Number two, those still in darkness respond, great fear because of Jesus. Number two, great fear because of Jesus. Let's read about it in verse 35. The people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they became frightened. So those who came from the city, those who came from the surrounding area, the herdsmen had come and had told the story. They came and saw this man who was delivered, and they became frightened. Then verse 36 says, those who had seen it, so the, um, the herdsmen had seen this happen, reported to them right then and there, watch this, how, in verse 3, how the man who was demon-possessed had been made well. 
and all the people of the country of the Gerasenes and the surrounding district asked him to leave them. Why? For, there's the reason, for they were gripped with great fear. They were seized with fear. And he got into the boat and returned. They had heard the story, and they had heard about Jesus, and they'd seen what he had done. But when it was explained to him, the voice of the demons, and what Jesus had said, and what had happened, and this incredible transformation, and they knew it was Jesus, this one in the flesh that they had heard about, they were then gripped with great fear, and they asked Jesus to leave. It was Jesus that they were afraid of when they found out directly how this man had been healed. Now, let me ask you a question. You have to work with me here. Is this a healthy fear of God? Answer, no. No. This is not reverential awe. This is not Peter in the boat. This is not seeing a great power on display and wanting to run from it. This is not a godly fear. There is a fear that drives you away from Jesus. It is not a godly fear. Now, the herdsmen are the heralds. And they had lost their entire herd of pigs, over 2,000 pigs. And in Mark chapter 5, one of the parallel passages of this account, Mark chapter 5 verse 16, the people are hearing about two things. (laughs) They're hearing about this great deliverance of the man from the herdsmen, but they're also hearing about the death of the 2,000 pigs and the great financial loss. Twofold report the loss of possessions. But I'm telling you, and I think it bears out in the structure of this passage, which I cannot show you this morning. I'm giving you a little bit of a hint. This is not a godly fear. This is an understanding how that Jesus has done this, and look at what he's done, and look at what it cost us, these 2,000 pigs. Here was a man, Jesus from Nazareth, that valued this pathetic man that had tormented him, this person above the possessions of these 2,000 pigs and had destroyed our livelihood. Here was a man who was more concerned about people than possessions. For the herdsmen, it was kind of irritating to lose those pigs. And I think that Pastor Kent Hughes is right on when he says this, quotes, perhaps they agreed that a great miracle had been wrought in the life of the demoniac, and they were happy for him. But as they reflected on such spiritual power, they feared that it might require something of them, so they decided it would be best for Jesus to go away in quotes. There's something in the heart of man that is so very curious about Jesus Christ, but will not relinquish control of their lives to Jesus Christ. He's afraid of it. The darkness doesn't want to leave us. MacArthur calls it in this passage, 
the hardening power of sin. And I agree. Why would they ask him to leave? Don't think it's a good reason. He's just, they're just so enamored with him. Leave. Why would they want such an amazing person who had accomplished such an incredible rescue and deliverance to leave and depart from them so they would see him no more? J.C. Ryle is right, quotes the Gadarenes love the world and the things of the world, and they were determined not to give them up. They feel convinced in their own consciences that they could not receive Christ among them and keep their sins and their stuff and their sins they were resolved to keep, in quotes. Whatever the cause of their fear, if you don't agree, because the text doesn't explicitly tell us, but it's in the structure and in the parallel passage. It is. Fine, but I'll tell you what, if you don't buy into that, there is a fear that drives you near to Christ, and there is a fear that drives Him far from you and says, I do not want to see you again, and sends them across the lake. And how sad it is when people ask Jesus to leave because they want to live their own lives. How sad it is when people ask Jesus to leave. When our kids ask Jesus to leave. Well, and that leads us then to drive it home to the third way that those that are still in darkness respond. And that's the culminating way in the passage, a desire for distance from Jesus. A desire for distance from Jesus. There's a form of Christianity that acknowledges the power of Christ. I don't disagree that you're different. Bill, you're different. Doesn't, I don't disagree with that. I think it's great. But keep him away from me. I don't want to be changed by Christ. I don't want to relinquish control to Christ. I don't want to submit to Christ. The telltale sign of rejecting Christ is a desire to keep your distance from Christ. Get the Bible away up on that shelf where it belongs. Stay away from the church and the preaching of the Word of God. Keep away from those Christians. They're always poking their nose into my business. Keep the deliverer at a distance. Distance, maybe write this down. Distance from Jesus is a sign that you are in the darkness Distance from Jesus is a sign that you are in the darkness. You hear the call to salvation, and we're fine with it as long as it's between the goalposts on our screen, but not in our hearts. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him will not perish 
but have everlasting life. We haven't read on. Take your Bibles quickly and turn to John chapter 3. You've got to go quickly because I have to go quickly, but keep your finger in our passage in Luke chapter 8. Let's read on. John chapter 3. Find verse 16. Here it is again, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Look at verse 17. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Well, how does this work? This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? Why? For their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light For fear, for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. So, the first response is of those who are still under the dominion of darkness. There's a lot of speculation and talk about Jesus but then t- truly, if they really get down to it, there's a fear of committing to Christ and letting go of their sin. And the result of that ultimately is this. They simply want distance from Jesus and they're not interested in Him. That's the first response. You're either in that category here this morning or you're in the category that I'm about to get to. There's no middle ground There's no third option. Secondly then, notice the response of those delivered from the dominion of darkness in verses 37 and 38. Let's go back then now to our passage in Luke chapter 8 for the balance of our time. He got into the boat and returned. Now look at verse 38. It's actually verse 38, sorry. Verse 38. But, see the contrast in verse 38? But the man from whom the demons had gone out was begging him that he might accompany him. The word for begging is begging. And the verb tense is over and over, over and over and over again. And the text says in the Greek, I don't like accompany him. The text says they were begging him in order to be with him. The response of those who have been delivered from the dominion of darkness, of sin and shame and death is that they 
beg him. They just desire more than anything else to be with him, to be close to him, to be near him. If he goes to the right, I'm going to the right. If he goes to the left, I'm going to the left. To walk with him. The greatest desire and longing of the delivered ones is to be with Jesus. Jesus, please, take me with you. You're the only one who understands me. You're the only one who loves me. You're the only one who came after me. Don't leave me. Take me with you. Take me with you. I beg you, Jesus. And I just reflected, oh, Jesus, I want this heart more and more. Is this your heart? Well, that desire to be near him is closely connected to the second way delivered people respond to the second way delivered people respond, and that is number two, submitting to Jesus, which is why I take the fear as not submitting because of the structure of this text and other reasons in the cross-references. You'll have to study that out later. Submitting to Jesus. This man is begging Jesus to be with him and to accompany him on his travels back across the lake. But what does Jesus say? Look at verse 38. But the man from the demons had gone out, was begging him that he might accompany him, but there's a sadness in this passage. But he sent him away, saying, return to your house. Return to your house and describe what great things God has done for you. And then what does the text say in verse 39? Look at it. So, So he went away. You know, what does it look like to be a delivered one? It looks like this. Jesus is calling the shots. Jesus is commanding, and what does he ask this man to do? He says, this is what I want you to do. So he went away. He obeyed the Lord. Did he feel like it? Come on. Did he feel like it? Did he feel like obeying? Not a chance. And I want to fill this point out of submitting to Jesus by looking carefully at verse 35. What is this man doing as the text describes him? This man is sitting down, watch this, at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. Now, sitting down at the feet of Jesus is a technical New Testament term for discipleship, for learning under a teacher, for sitting at his feet and hearing his word. And it implies very directly, it's the posture, and everyone would know it, including the herdsmen, including the townsmen. Everyone would know, here's one submitting to Jesus humbly, listening to his words. That's the heart of of a delivered, oh, Jesus, I love you. Teach me, teach me, teach me. I want your words set me free. I want more of your words. Give me your word. Your words were my life. Your words are still my life. It reminds me of Mary and Martha, which we'll get to in Luke chapter 10 in a few weeks, I suppose, when 
Martha scurrying around with activity and anxiety. And there's poor Mary. What is she doing? She's sitting at the feet of Jesus, the text says, and she is listening to his word. And our Lord Jesus Christ says, now listen, Martha, Mary has chosen the one needful thing to sit at my feet and listen to my word, which is to say submitting to Jesus, obeying Jesus, following Jesus, handing control over to Jesus. This are, these are your pigs, Jesus. Do with them what you will, Jesus. This is your family. This is your church, Jesus. And so I think it is a parallel structure from this text so that the ungodly fear is a fear of submitting to Jesus and losing out of control on their lives, which would lose out on the stuff that they loved more, their own possessions. We are to remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 8, verse 21, in the context in Luke 8, 21, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. It sets the context. You can't be delivered like this man from all of that darkness. Thank you, Jesus. That was, that was a pretty cool trick you did. I'm now at my right mind. See you later. Get away from me. I don't love you. I'm not going to submit to you. I have no gratitude. That's unthinkable in this passage. And so it is unthinkable in our great salvation. Joy makes sense in this passage. Love makes sense in this passage. Gratitude makes sense in this passage. It makes sense here and it makes sense when the woman wet his feet with her tears, dried them off, no matter what anybody else thought, including the Pharisees, that she was in that home. That makes sense with the great deliverance that Jesus has brought. And that is kind of interesting because as we, as we land the plane now, the final way those delivered from the darkness respond, and notice the structure for those who are interested in these things. It started out with people talking and speculating, and now it ends with some other talk about Jesus, but it's fundamentally different in the structure of the passage. No, no, it's not just curiously speculating about Jesus. No, the delivered from darkness respond with their words as well, but notice that final aspect, there is a proclamation about Jesus. Not a speculation, but a proclamation in verse 38. But the man from whom the demons had gone out was begging him that he might accompany him. But he sent him away saying, return to your house. Now watch this. Look at verse 39. Return to your house. Why? Return to your house and describe what great things God has done for you. Is that important? Yes, because he's going to say it twice. So, he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. And that word for proclaiming is a different word than the speculatory report of the herdsmen. This is the word 
for preaching. This is heralding the truth of the person and work of Christ. Not stating an opinion, but declaring Jesus. And it's repeated twice. The great things God has done for you, the great things Jesus has done for him. Now, did you notice he says he didn't have a home? His home were the tombs or even the desert wilderness wanderings. Now he's sent back where? Home to people, to his home. But he's not content with just his home. It spreads to all the city. And in a parallel passage in Mark chapter 5, verse 20, he actually was a missionary to the whole Decapolis, 10 cities in the demonic darkness Gentile land across the sea. MacArthur is right and said, well, the maniac had become a missionary. Oh, brothers and sisters, if you have been set free, if you have been saved like this, if you have been redeemed like this, I'm telling you, you're afraid, just like I am. It's hard to open up your mouth. But when you do and the Holy Spirit overcomes the the remainders of darkness, right, that would keep you from it. And you proclaim Jesus and what he, the great things he has done for you. You almost can't stop. You have to kind of contain yourself and try to be controlled. But yet he brings so much joy for the opportunity to herald to your home, to your city, to those around you, the great things that God has done for you. Am I right? You can have even the worst day in the world. And then you have an opportunity to proclaim the work of Christ for you right? And all of a sudden, your day is grand, believer. And do not discount something in this process of proclamation. It's not just who is God, who is man, who is Jesus in response. It is the heart of it. But do not minimize the importance of personal testimony in this process. For the text says, the great things that he has done for you, it's both hands. I see people pitting testimony and gospel. They uh, work together. Get to the gospel, please. But use your testimony. So, here's the structure. There's two responses. Speculation. Fear of speculation. Fear of submitting. Don't want to be near. Love to be near. Willing to submit. And not speculating, proclaiming the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So, I think it's appropriate here to wallow, if you're familiar with that word, to wallow, because it's a pig word. I thought that was fun. To wallow, not in the mud, but in the great things that God has done for us, to wallow in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. First, his person in this passage. Luke is trying to show us something here. Some of you caught it at the end of this passage. Some of you caught it. It's easier to see in the Greek text. Luke is telling us here, that the Jesus Christ who was asleep in the boat in respect to his humanity in the last passage is now highlighting that he, was, he is Yahweh come in the flesh with all the authority over time and space in the demonic realm in this passage. For he says in verse 38, right? 
I'm going to read it in the Greek text. Describe all for you he did God. Or all he did for you, Jesus. Did you see that? Almost the same terminology put in parallel with God and Jesus at the end, equating Jesus and God in this passage. Clearly in the Greek text. And you see it in the English text as well. God and Jesus are equated here. They're placed at the very end of the phrase. Here is what Luke is trying to get us to see. Jesus is God. So we're to say, hallelujah, what a Savior. This is the one to whom we bend the knee. It is God come to rescue us in the flesh. Come to dwell among us in the flesh. What man cannot do, could that demoniac do anything? God did when he came, the Son of God, the Son of the Most High God. Somehow not the Father and somehow one with the Father at the end of this passage comes for us in the darkness which leads to us wallowing in his work for a moment. What kindness, listen, what kindness for Christ to plunge into the darkness and come find us living among the tombs. What kindness to leave a missionary witness to the dark Gentile regions. Even though those dark Gentile regions says, get out of here. We don't want you. Jesus in his love leaves them a gospel witness. What kindness, what power and authority that has come to us while we are naked and shameless in our sin, he clothed us in his perfect righteousness. While we were out of our minds in sin, he made our minds right so that we sit at the feet of Jesus. What a full salvation. We are driven by our own hearts. The world, the flesh, and the devil had driven us into the wilderness of this world. But he's brought us back home He's brought us back together in the company of each other with a new identity. Our name is no longer legion. We are no longer strangers, but sons and daughters of the most high God. I mean, this man legion was disgusting, dishonorable, dangerous, and disturbing. What a reputation that he had in the past. And yet he's sent to the city, the city who knew him to be the four D's. He was sent not a fourth D, now he was sent describing the great things that God had done for him. And they listened. And a light was planted in that region. I just am amazed that our Lord Jesus Christ, despite of my past, has called me into gospel ministry. Are you amazed that he uses a sinner like you? Paul was. I can't believe it. I'm the chief of sinners. Paul says in 1 Timothy, which Pastor Dan opened up. Bobby Harness said when we were talking about this last week, I think he's right. This is incredible. He said that this man was transformed from that defacing image. Now he's being transformed into the image of Christ. But not only that, that's not it. We are called to the mission of Christ. This is a missionary text. 
Raise your hand if you like missionary stories. This is a missionary story. The text establishes a pattern made crystal clear by Jesus when he rose from the dead in resurrection power and he stood before his disciples and I think stands before all of us within the church today, the great mission or the great co-mission. And Jesus says, and I just listen, in Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am, lo, I am with you all the day, the text says in the Greek, even to the end of the age. And there is that passage. This is what this passage proclaims. The power and the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as he came alive from the dead, that is what we have. We are promised through the Spirit on mission with Christ. The very power of Christ in us to do this work of the Great Commission and to do it together into the darkness so that we'd get into the boat with Jesus. We'd survive the storm. We'd go to the other side to the Gentile lands in the darkness, whether it's our home, whether it's our neighborhood or the city or beyond the cities. We go not only alone. Hello, Jesus says. Let me tell you about the new covenant. Ah, you want me to go. I'm going to send my spirit. You won't have to be alone. I am with you. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And at the end of the age, does that mean at the end of the age we're not with him? No, he says, oh, if you thought that was good in the new covenant age of mission, oh, in that day, faith will become sight. And we know from Revelation chapter 21, verse 3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And then the greatest desire of the redeemed will be realized fully, and that is our hope of heaven. And that was what made the demons terrorize, to be face to face in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that forever. And so this is the final question that Luke wants us to ask. Right here. Listen carefully. Do you desire distance from Jesus? Or, you, or do you desire to be with Jesus? He's mighty to save. If this guy's not too far gone, you're not too far gone. Come to me, Jesus says in Matthew 11, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You have met Jesus on the beach through the Spirit in the Word of God. Are you going to send him away? Or are you going to ask him to stay? Let us pray.